your purchasing dollar, it does matter. And to be thoughtful and mindful about what we put into our homes, like we are mindful of what we put into our bodies. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hi, Emma. What good dirt do you have for our listeners this week? Well, we have some really exciting things coming up. We've got a Kiefer workshop next week taught by you, which is going to be so much fun. I can't wait. Um, It's all about our favorite amazing superfood beverage that we all swear by because it's so delicious and it's so good for your gut. Um, We hope that you all join us. If you know me at all, you've probably been subjected to my Kiefer talk at some point during which I've forced you to listen to me go on and on about how and why this kefir needs to be a part of your life. But this time my audience will be voluntary. You'll be signing up for it. (laughs) Yes, they will have, (laughs) they will have by their own accord decided that they want to be there. Yeah. (laughs) That will be fun. Um, I also have a memory about kefir. I was trying to think of like when we started doing kefir and why. Yeah. And it's actually a really sweet story. It's like right when you first moved to the farm and there was that orphaned the little cow. Yeah. That um, you tried to save. So right. That, uh, spoiler alert, we couldn't save the cow, but it was really sweet. Yeah. It was what they call a downed calf. Sometimes they, um, they go way out and the calves are born out in the grass somewhere and the farmer isn't able to find it. So anyway, this farmer neighbor found it a little late. She was alive, but she had missed out on the first couple of days of the, of nursing. And, um, this makes it hard for the calf to survive. So anyway, I said I would take her in and, and, um, feed her and did not know what to do because I'm not actually a, a cow girl. So I made a bunch of phone calls and to make a long story short, I was told that the only way the calf had a chance of surviving was to get raw milk. And that was hard those years ago and it's still hard, but I was able to find some raw milk and the little baby did rally for a few days. Um, and I was so intrigued by the whole idea of raw milk and I thought I want to drink it. And I knew that, um, but you, you hear all kinds of scary stories about raw milk. And I had heard about kefir where you culture it, which actually helps combat any of the bad bacteria in it. Um, 
so I looked into that and started doing it and discovered something completely life-changing. Maybe it's like the coin of the little cow brought you Kiefer. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, she, she eventually succumbed because her slow start in life was just too much for her, but she was so sweet. We called her Luna because she came to us on a full moon. But uh, you do not have to have raw milk to make kefir at all. Um, in fact, you can even make kefir out of nut milks and non-dairy milks and so forth. So um, this workshop is not about raw milk at all. That's a whole other topic. That <laughs> um, it is about culturing your whatever kind of milk into a wonderfully healthy and delicious and delightful beverage that is i'll also get, give a plug um far more nutritionally dense than like a store-bought kefir nothing wrong with store-bought but if you can make your own it's yes. much more bang for your buck yeah it's just way more potent because mm-hmm. obviously something that's you know created for widespread distribution Um, things have to happen in the processing, which take away some of the health benefits. So we're going to talk about all that. I'm going to tell you all this great stuff about it. I think it's sort of wonderful and thrilling even (laughs) that something so beneficial can only be made at home. It can't be turned into this big product that everybody's out there buying. This is something you need to make at home. And it really, once you get into the groove of it, it's very, very little time involved. Um, so come join us. I just love to talk about it, as you know. <laughs> yeah, so there's definitely still time to sign up. It is May 19th in the evening, Eastern Standard Time. There will be a recording available if you can't join us live. And it's a fun time. Also, if you're a member of the Almanac, this is free to join. So just RSVP in the Almanac. You know where to find it. Um, and you will get the link. If you're not a member of the Almanac, that's totally fine. You can purchase a ticket um, on our website. It's also listed on Eventbrite if you're on there. So we have that, and then the week following, we have our spring indigo pop-up. We did this last year, and it was so fun. We just love doing it. Mom loves to do indigo dyeing, and we've got another round of really fun things for you this year in a couple weeks, and so stay tuned for our – it's just a quick – 24 to 36 hours, kind of flash sale. Things are super limited um, quantities, so that's why we do it like that. And, yeah, that's going on. (laughs) Yeah, I've been over here um, working away, and I've got the blue hands to prove it. What have you been dipping? Oh, gosh, a whole bunch of things. Scarves, baby swaddles, napkins, kitchen towels, socks, bandanas, and this time – I've got several thrifted items that I am transforming into some wonderful one-of-a-kind pieces. It's so much fun. Oh, I can't wait to see. I haven't even seen yet. Such a great idea. Yeah, it's it's so fun to take something just kind of ordinary and work a little indigo magic on it. And voila, you have this beautiful thing like no other. Yeah, I think people are going to love it. And also, speaking of dyeing, we also have a natural dyeing workshop intensive coming up in June, also taught by you. Yes, it's an online class, um, and it's 
an overview of some natural dyeing basics. We're going to talk about equipment, resources, the dye plants, the colors, techniques, troubleshooting, and we're also going to do a project during the class. We'll be bundle dyeing with flower petals and or food items, just things you have lying around. And I'll be walking you through that. Included in your ticket price is an organic cotton bandana that's all prepped and ready for you to dye so you can do it during the class with the group or later on on your own time if you prefer. But anyway, if you come to the class, you'll know how to do it. Yeah, so be on the lookout for that. We haven't put tickets on sale for that yet. Um, again, similar to our Grow Your Own Food Intensive back in March, this will be, um, it's kind of a heftier, longer class than the Kiefer Workshop. Uh, so it'll be available at a discounted price to, on, to Almanac members. And um, if you're not in the Almanac, that's totally cool. You can sign up and everyone is welcome. Um, yeah. So keep an eye out for all of that. And let's, yeah. I guess, get into this episode for today. So today we have Lonnie Estill, who is the creator behind Lonnie's Lana. Lana is a word for wool. Um, it's a line of yarn that is a product of her ranching business and her love of wool and natural fibers. The fibers that are used in Lonnie's yarn are sourced from Bear Ranch, which is also her ranch in Surprise Valley, California, and also similar neighboring ranches that have similar values for their wool and the cultivation of their wool. The Bear Ranch in Surprise Valley supports a Ramboulet sheep operation. The Ramboulet breed of sheep is closely related to the well-known Merino breed. This wool is the same soft fiber as the Merino, but the breed has been adapted to fit the American open range model of raising sheep. Lani's Lana wool is grown using sustainable natural methods rooted in tradition and processed by skilled artisans. It is completely natural and with no harmful dyes or chemicals. In this episode, you'll hear Lonnie talk about the climate beneficial aspects of their operation, which include projects such as large-scale composting, the implementation of perennial crops, managed grazing. Yeah, so we heard about uh, Lonnie first through Fibershed, which if you haven't listened to that episode, you should definitely go back and listen to our episode with Rebecca Burgess. We will link that in the show notes. Uh, Fibershed, if you don't know and you're just now tuning in, is a wonderful organization based around connecting regional fiber sheds, so fiber producers to the consumer and building these networks all throughout the country and the world, honestly. So connecting us to the roots of our fibers. A really fun aspect of Lonnie's operation is that she worked directly with the North Face, the brand, the outdoor gear brand, to create... Uh, scarves and hat beanie hats um, and I believe also some jackets they had like some zip-up hoodies uh, using her wool so it was all a local fiber shed production operation supply chain which is really cool for a major brand to be doing that it's it's kind of a, a little beacon of hope in our world um, I have one of the North Face beanies and it's just the best I really love it it it's full of love and it so, feels so good to wear. I think you're going to learn so much from this conversation. So let's go ahead and get started.
accountant by education. I was raised in rural communities. My dad was a range conservationist. My mom was a home economics teacher. Growing up in a rural area, I ended up going to college in agriculture. And I guess by what my parents are doing, you can see how I kind of naturally gravitated towards what I'm doing now, which is working with wool from our ranch, from our own sheep, and taking that through the supply chain to yarn and fabric and comb top. My dad was a range economist, conservationist, and uh, worked on rangelands and outside all the time. My mom was a home economist, a teacher. She sewed and still quilts. She's just a crazy quilter. My parents were very influential in my life and my career choices, along with where they chose to live, which was a rural community where I am now, Modoc County, in the northeast corner of California. When my husband and I moved here, it's actually my ex-husband at this moment. When we moved here to Surprise Valley, it was coming home for me. So that was comfortable. And I was able to dive right into the community and bought this ranch and started raising sheep. Um, had a ranch prior. Most people don't just go buy a ranch, but we traded into this one, which had the sheep allotments. And so we were able to expand our sheep operation, which we started in 1992. So in the 2000s, we expanded it. So we now have a range flock of about 3,000 sheep. And they run from the northeast part of California, Northern California, up into the Northwest part of Nevada. They do about a hundred mile walk every year. So they go from the rangelands up into the mountains and back again. How did it happen that you had training as an accountant, but then you bought a ranch, you became a rancher? Well, mostly because of my ex-husband. His family was a ranching family. I became the ranch accountant. Got it. You know, you just start doing everything involved with a ranch, cooking, raising four children. We bottle fed bummer lambs. We had herders to do the day-to-day work and still do, but you know, there's just a lot of things that you do going along with that. And my love was the wool. I just absolutely fell in love with the wool and eventually became a wool classer. What is that for people who don't know? So when you shear the fleece off of the sheep, Throw it on a skirting table, which is a big table that has bars across it, and the dirty wool bits and pieces fall through that, a lot of the dirt, and then you skirt it to get the other vegetation and stuff off of the sheep. And then the wool classer's job, besides skirting, is to class that wool. So you take it and determine how fine it is. So micron count, but you're not like with a tester trying to get exactly 21.7 micron. It's more of an eye thing to say, okay, this is our A-line, the main line. And then there's finer off of that or coarser off of that. And you also check for breakage length. So you're virtually sorting it before it goes to the next phase of, would it be spinning? Is that what happens next? Yeah, scouring. Right. Scouring, combing and then spinning. But yeah, a lot of it happens right there on the ground. And it's very important, especially in the larger clips. If you want to sell your wool for the best price, it's got to be skirted and classed preferably. At what point in your career there did you start getting interested in the regenerative aspect of what you guys are doing on the ranch? 
and you want to explain that and all about the carbon farming and how that relates to your sheep. And I, I think that's going to be really, really interesting to our listeners. That came a little bit later for us. I mentioned at the beginning, my dad was a range conservationist. And so projects to improve the land and the soil had always been something I was introduced to or knew about or knew what my dad was working on. Plant identification, soil erosion, those types of things were talked about in our home. So to me, this idea of carbon farming was pretty natural. And then as a rancher, you're always looking for ways to do things better. We work on public lands, and so we have a lot of oversight in what we do with our grazing. So we've got people around us telling us the right way to do things. So the carbon farm plan came from Fibershed, though. It's kind of a new idea. And Fibershed is a group in Northern California founded by Rebecca Burgess. She's an amazing visionary, has something that I really gravitated to, which is a soil-to-soil concept in our clothing, where we want to grow our natural fibers, whether they be plant-based or animal-based, use them, and then have the ability to return it to the earth. So in a nutshell, that's what Rebecca does, plus much, much more. And she cold called me, actually. She was doing her wool inventory and cold called me. And a cold call turned into an hour and a half conversation with, you know, like-minded people. And she and I just really connected. So that started a great friendship and relationship that turned into a carbon farm plan. The carbon farm plan is a baseline for your ranch. Carbon Cycle Institute was the ones who kind of spearheaded that. It was a team concept also with NRCS, Natural Resource Conservation Service, and Fiber Shed. So we did a baseline of the ranch, how we currently used it, grazed it, you know, the meadows, the streamlines, so a lot of mapping was involved, soil surveys, looked at areas of concern, and did a list of projects that we wanted to do on the ranch. And the projects are what help to draw down the carbon from the atmosphere into the soil and get that soil health improvement and also releasing less carbon into the air. That's amazing. It's like walking the walk. It's like you're doing the thing (laughs) and you're selling the product there in your store and you come from the, the conservation background, you have the land, you have the end product, you kind of represent in your business every part of the cycle, which is really cool. So what do you say is your main, are you a rancher? Are you a store owner? Are you a product developer? What do you, what do you say that you do? All of the above. <laughs> I'm even doing some textile design and I always tell people that ask me to help them with their yarn or fabric is like this is not my thing you know <laughs> I'm an accountant and a sheep rancher <laughs> wow if you can advise somewhere else please take it <laughs> yeah it's interesting it really really is when you connect the dots like this and you're covering so much ground it's hard to be an expert at everything <laughs> right but I guess I know enough to be dangerous so <laughs> I love how you talked about how Rebecca Burgess Fibershed just cold called you and that's how that started. And my perspective as an outsider looking at Fibershed, I see Lonnie's Lana, you're like one of the main kind of founding partners and farms and projects of the Northern California Fibershed, which is the original founding Fibershed group and all the affiliates from all over the country have sort of branched off of that. So can you talk to us a little bit about earlier on in Fibershed, what that was like getting that 
off the ground, what were some of the earlier projects that you guys did? Lady Farmer actually purchased your community-supported cloth that I know was something that came from your farm. So can you tell us a little bit about some of those things? I think I got involved with Fibershed at about their second or third wool symposium. So I wasn't ground, ground floor for sure, but I probably was their first carbon farm plan and their first climate beneficial wool because we put practices into place relatively quickly after we did the carbon farm plan. And tell us about the community supported cloth. So that was the first big project we did with them. It was amazing. So I had this beautiful black wool that was just being sold for pennies on the dollar. And the rest of my clip was sold on a video and normally went to China. I didn't like that. I did not like that at all. And I was good friends with Bonnie Chase, who's now my partner and mentor in the store. She owns the store. Bonnie and I had already started to make comb top with this brown wool. And so we'd taken that step. And so we were already kind of into making yarn. So with Fibershed's help, we went from a very small 30 to 60 pounds of raw wool up into a full bale, 750 pounds. I partnered with Christine Villar at Ver for Keeping Warm, and we made two totally separate yarns, but we went together with that bale and shipping and getting it to the mill, and then made our two separate yarns. So that was our great first partnership. So then I had this yarn. We took a huge leap the following year and took our whole entire wool clip and took it to Chargiers in North Carolina. So 25,000 pounds and had it scoured. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing that we did that. And that was totally with Rebecca's help because I could not have done that if she would not have helped me line up a sale with North Face mm -hmm. and also with Brooklyn Tweed. Mm -hmm. And they both bought the equivalent to 5,000 raw pounds. And so then I had that confidence to go ahead with the rest and think, okay, I can make yarn out of the rest. And part of that yarn went into community-supported cloth. Cool. It's a good reminder of how much of to scale these projects have to be to be feasible. And right? it's a reminder of how when things are small scale and small batch, it's just so unfeasible that when they do happen it's totally reflected in the price and that's why things become inaccessible cost-wise because to make even something work and have it be it all makes sense it needs to be what, what did you say what was that number Twenty-five thousand raw wool pounds <laughs> yeah. a lot of that's dirt so half of that is washed out but still twelve and a half thousand pounds of wool wow yeah. Jeez. <laughs> some of you listening that have been following Lady Farmer for a while, you might remember that we had these beautiful white shawls that we made out of that community supported wool. You know, we couldn't buy too much of it, but we did buy enough to make several of them and they sold very quickly and people love them. And we got to tell that story of, you know, how this is climate beneficial wool. And people are really amazed by that and they're really interested in it. And but before we get too much away from the whole carbon farming thing, I wanted you to talk a little bit about what that really means to invest in operations such as yours that are actually climate beneficial. They're actually mitigating the climate change and that that's very scientifically based. And I think for some people, it's still really news. Like some people out there may not have even ever heard of this. 
Yeah, it's not only kind of new, but it's necessary that it continue. I mean, it can't become old. It's a really small group of us now that are doing this. I mean, still after 10 years and it's gain momentum. We just have to keep it fresh and keep the investment coming because it's expensive. What is the expensive part of it or like what makes it expensive? Can I just talk about a couple projects in specifics and then I can give you kind of an idea of what that costs. One of our first projects was a compost production and application and North Face helped us with that. They gave us $10,000, which enabled us to buy some wood chips actually from our ranch. So it wasn't outside our circle, but it did require freight to get it out of the mountains and down to the ranch. And so they gave us $10,000 to do that. That was huge. Not so much in, it paid for the project because one year of compost production is about $28,000 when you consider manpower and equipment. It's a lot. And that's offset by fertilizer you're not buying. So it's offset by some costs. But when they gave us that $10,000, it was big mentally because it was like oh wow a big brand recognizes what we're doing and it's important to them and so it gave us that enthusiasm and then another project we're working on which is an annual we just keep plugging away at it we put in a shelter belt slash hedgerow and is about four thousand feet there's two rows two thousand feet two rows of the of plantings and we originally put it in with lots of enthusiasm like all projects start, (laughs) put in the water, put in the trees, every single tree and plant had a compost component and we put a lot of love into that. And then the next year when it came up, it was totally drowned out by weeds because then of course we had water and water brings weeds in the desert, especially in disturbed soil. You worked up some of the soil for these plantings. And so it wasn't really super successful. So we ended up having a crew come in to weed and they had weed eaters and they couldn't identify where the plants were. And they popped off some little baby locust trees. I mean, they just weren't big enough to be identified as an actual tree. And there were also uh, areas that didn't have the water. The drip line wasn't working correctly. Pressure wasn't right. So we lost plants. And so we're in our third year. Of planting. We just got some trees in and we're going to schedule another planting coming up in the next week, I hope, to get those in the ground. That's just an ongoing. And then cost, if I can tie that back cost. We spent $11,000 on plants, another probably equal amount on the irrigation and the fencing to keep it protected from livestock and wildlife. So that project, I think, is up in the 25000 range. And that's being funded through Fibershed and NRCS. NRCS helped us initially with the initial plants, initial fence and water. And then Fibershed is buying, helping us purchase plants every year. And part of that is our climate beneficial premium that we've charged on the wool. And this planting tree project, that's one carbon project and then the compost is another. Yes. Can you explain? You're like measuring the carbon in the soil before and then after and Is that happening? We do do um, soil tests. And so we're able to tell basically by organic matter if we're getting an improvement that way. Mm -hmm. But the carbon capture calculations are done through a tool called a Comet Planner, which the Carbon Cycle Institute helps us do the math on that. They plug in the projects and the number of feet, acres, however large it is. And there's certain numbers that say how much carbon you're drawing down by doing that. And they're based in science. 
show. I don't do that. I just yeah. tell them this project. <laughs> you guys do the math. <laughs> yeah. Are you also capturing carbon with the managed grazing of your sheep? We haven't put a number on that because that was baseline. So our grazing continues like it did before with our grazing plan. And it is a rotational thing with the sheep. They follow basically the same rotation, but they go in a little different area each year. And the way sheep trail through, they don't stay in a pasture. They trail through and use the forage and move to the next. So they're constantly moving and don't stay in one area very long. The one project that we've been working on and has given us a lot of bang for, for the buck, a lot of carbon drawdown the last four years, is we've taken a field that was wheat every year or it was an annual crop. Triticale was the crop we usually put in there. And we try, have been working to get that into a permanent crop, you know, alfalfa and or pasture. Because every year when you plow that up, you release carbon into the atmosphere, which was a bad thing. And so we have worked really hard to stop that bad thing, which was releasing and then leaving fallow to release more carbon mm -hmm. and keeping it covered with vegetation the whole time. It was difficult because of the ground where it was. It wasn't easy to irrigate. And we had to do it with hand lines a bit at a time. So we did 50 acres and then we did another 50 acres. And we've got 176 now transferred into permanent pasture. And then that becomes sheep forage, those carbon capturing crops. Yeah, it's sheep forage and the part that's alfalfa we can harvest and feed in the winter mm -hmm. and make hay. This sounds like a lot. So first of all, I will say on the East Coast, it's hard for us to even like picture the amount of land that we're working with here just because we have way less expanses of land. And so just like the acreage you're talking about and all of that is just kind of mind blowing. So can you tell us a little bit about like the team you have managing this and, and everything that goes into it? It is large and it's West Coast. We're high desert. We're very arid. So you can't make a living on a small piece of ground like you can on the East Coast. It's too arid. And so the ranches do tend to be bigger. So my team is most of the stuff that's happening on the ranch that I'm talking about is still under management with my ex-husband. And we're not together anymore. Unfortunately, we're still in the same area. And I go out and see what they're doing and help when we shear and that. So I'm still involved on the ranch. But the day-to-day -day is John, my son, Cole who is 28 now, and he's the sheep manager. We have five herders and a couple more guys during lambing, and they stay with the sheep year-round. And then we have a cowboy crew as well, because we have cattle too. And haying happens with a lot of those guys will shift, you know, into haying during haying season and go back into the livestock. And then we have two guys that I would say would be our farm crew. One guy does mostly feeding and equipment operation and then another guy's a mechanic. And how many total acres is it? Oh gosh, I don't want to blow your mind too much. Because <laughs> it, it is, it's numbers you can't imagine, but it, I have to say with a caveat, because we don't have exclusive control of these acres. Okay. This is federal public lands. There's other users involved who have cattle permits. Oh, okay. And obviously the public can, can go out and recreate and wildlife and so on. It is a... Um, 500,000 acre operation. Oh, wow. And then right up into Northern California. Wow. So does that mean that you and your ex-husband are like responsible for 
this acreage or you're able to use this land for your, like, tell us about that. We're responsible for our deeded acres. Okay. So the ranch where all these projects are happening and the water there, the meadows, that's ours. And then the grazing is we're responsible for the animals and how they use the public land. And there's definitely rules. There's all kinds of regulations that we have to follow and we have to tell them what we're doing when we're trailing and moving. And it's a relationship with the agencies cultivated over many, many decades and generations been going on for a while. You know, not like the indigenous populations, but certainly long enough to have ebb and a flow to how we run these sheep. So the sheep that are out there, are they historically adapted to, to that climate and the plants they eat and everything? Tell us about the breed of sheep that you're using and the kind of wool that they produce and why you use that breed. Yeah, Mary, they are definitely acclimated to the high desert. So Rambouillet is often referred to as the American Merino because they're adapted to the high desert range type of operation. And if you have a Oh, let's just take a Suffolk lamb, which would be more of a meat breed. They don't herd as well. They don't stay together. They're not gregarious like the white sheep are, the Rambouillet are. So that breed-wise, they're definitely acclimated to the area. And then the wool is this beautiful fine wool that we love so much. The micron squishy wool that we love to work with. Are they the type of sheep that need to be sheared once a year or do you do it twice a year? We shear once a year and we tag in between, which is crutching around the areas that get really, really dirty, get all the manure off. And yeah. Before lambing, we tend to uh, want to tag or crutch. Well, a lot of choppers out there will recognize, you know, like we hear a lot about merino wool, everything's merino wool, this and that. And I, I could be wrong about this, but it seems to me like the marketing of merino wool has been kind of a recent thing because it's it's softer than other kinds of wool and you can wear it against your skin and all that but merino wool is not indigenous to the united states is that true and this one is yeah neither one are native to america so the kind of the breed history was the merino was a spanish breed and it was gifted to the french and when the french got it same breed of sheep they changed it to rambouillet which is the region that that king was in or where he was from and I guess I should look up their names <laughs> which monarchy this was when that happened but yeah that's the history and then they were both brought into the U.S. I think the Rambouillet came first to the U.S. and then Merino came later even though Merino is an older breed and they're definitely related and when you see it in the stores as American Merino it very well could be a Targi or a Rambouillet, Merinos breed specific. And I know Merino producers like their Merinos, but when it gets back into the production part of fabric and the knitters and whatnot, it's kind of more of a generic term for fine wool. Going off from that, can we go more into the consumer side of things and what you do and the kinds of products you design and produce and also carry? Specifically, I want to hear more about the project with the North Face and those beanies that were made. It's really interesting. Yeah, great. Can I just continue with the community supported cloth just a yeah, little bit? Yeah, let's do that. Community supported cloth is now referred to as Bear Ranch fabric, or I guess we're calling it a Bear Ranch twill and a Bear Ranch plain weave. So I have two fabrics now, a twill and a plain weave, and we are continuing to make that. It's a stock fabric now. 
can be found on my website, lonniesalana.com. And it's kind of exciting and disappointing, two parts of it, because I tried this last year to do naturally dyed fabric and it worked out. It's beautiful. I have some designers who want to use it and my dyer isn't doing it for me anymore. Mm. So I can't do naturally dyed yarns. You really need some natural dyers at scale. But instead of fighting it, I'm going to go back to my roots kind of, which was my black wool. And I'm going to make a fine yarn, a single with the black, and we're going to weave with that. And so I will have some naturally colored fabrics in the plain weave and twill. That's on the horizon. I'm really excited about that. And when you say in stock, you mean like, I mean, is it like a limited run or is it kind of something that you plan to keep? It'll just be a, a thing that you're able to produce and keep in stock. It'll just be there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you can go to my website and order it. Exciting. For large projects, like if you want to do a 100 yard, 200 yard fabric order, it would have to be pre-ordered. But for the general user, it'll just be a stock fabric. Beautiful. I'm kind of a novice sewer, but I do dream about when I get there making up my own twill coat. So I'm going to keep an eye on that fabric. (laughs) Maybe I'll go ahead and get some to keep me motivated. Yep, it'd be great. And the plain weave is a lighter weave and is perfect for shirting. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. You asked me about (laughs) North Face. I'm wearing my North Face scarf and it's a beautiful twill. And then they did a beanie and we actually did a climate beneficial jacket. There were two iterations of the jacket. And then uh, COVID hit, which was tragic for us because North Face and the brands, they just kind of quit. And they, they left us without a buyer. I hope they'll come back. I know they'll come back because the economy is going to come back. But COVID definitely stopped that. And we, being Fibershed, came to a point where the producers had no buyers for their wool and Fibershed saw this need and came in with a wool pool and purchased the fine wools from within our region and we're doing kind of a wool pool so I don't own my clip this year I sold it to this Fibershed wool pool which is a climate beneficial wool pool and we're hoping that the North Face will come in to that wool pool so instead of working directly with me they'll be buying from the pool and they'll go on with more products because they loved the project. I know they did. Heart wrenching for the people who had to implement those decisions. Do you think the whole thing was just kind of too out of the box to be affordable for them in the, the tight time of COVID? You know, why did they just abandon it? Do you have any idea? It was getting smaller. You know, we went with a pretty big project to start with and it was successful, but every year it was kind of a fight to keep the size of the project going and they sold out every year. So I kind of trouble understanding this other than it was high priced. Yeah. And so they took it from being kind of an online specialty thing with in a few stores to their Browns collection, which is the exclusive collection. And it's only sold in a couple of stores that are in the higher end district. So it just got smaller and more exclusive. And you heard my minimums. I do the whole clip. It's 25,000 pounds. So I need those big sales in order to make it all work. I'm very thankful that I don't have that pressure anymore, that we've got this wool pool going. Yeah. And I can just work with the amount of wool that I want to work with instead of having that pressure to sell all of that wool every single year. 
Well, I'm really curious, the, the jacket they made, the climate beneficial jacket. So obviously that had your wool in it. What were some of the other components of that? Did it contain any synthetics or I'm just really curious about that. It did. It had a lining. Don't believe it was silk and buttons, you know, that type of thing. I have the beanie and I'm imagining the scarf and the beanie are the same like weave. So is the jacket that same weave too? No, the scarf and the beanie are in knit. So they were totally different supply chain. And then the fabric was made by American Woolen, which is another interesting story because that was a business that was going under and all the equipment was boxed up ready to be shipped oh to China. Three young people in their, you know, 30s, 40s took the dive to save that business and started making fabric and Italian really nice, nice fabric. So mine was made by them. And where is American Woolen? Connecticut. Okay. And are they still in business? Yes. Cool. I'm going to look them up. And did the scarf and the beanie, was that blended with anything or did they just use the wool? That was just our wool. No blending. It's amazing. It's the best beanie. I love it so much. It's sold out. I didn't even get it in my store. I wonder why if it's sold out, you know, I wish these companies would make these things a little more mainstream. Like they were, sounds like they were on the path to doing that, you know, like this is a climate beneficial garment and we can do it to scale and we can sell it out. And, but I guess, you know, it still turns out to be too much of a, I don't know, special market or something. I think it was the price point. But isn't it true that if you're able to up the demand, if they're getting enough orders, shouldn't the price point go down at some point? They don't want to lose money. Right. And yeah, the price point just, it's an expensive supply chain. My yeah. wool is expensive. It's at a premium because it is climate beneficial. You know, money goes back to the ranch on the ground. Yeah. Mm -hmm. projects. So that part's expensive. And then it's just an expensive supply chain. And wool is a premium product. This is something we talk about all the time. And mm -hmm. it just takes a lot of talking about it just for people to recognize that the cheaper things are cheaper for a reason. It's not like people out there creating sustainable products or trying to get rich. <laughs> That's not the way it's working. And, and we talk about this all the time, too. Consumers are used to thinking that the best buy is something that they can you know, get the most of or the least amount of money. And so this is contrary to all that. So it's just a, it's a re-education, you know, it's education to begin with. But right. what does climate beneficial mean? What are these products? What goes behind these products? And why do you want to pay more for these things? Yeah. And it's, you know, you got to think in terms of dollars per wear, you know, not mm -hmm. just, yeah, this costs me X amount of dollars and that really nice wool one is twice as much. Why would I yeah. pay that money? But if you look in your closet five years later, that wool is still going to be there where the other one is long gone. And then when it gets to the end of its life, which could be decades later, you know, it can be composted and it will return to the soil. So that's education. That is education. <laughs> and also pointing out, you know, like your scarf would be way cheaper than that. And people say, why wouldn't I buy that perfectly good scarf? It's going to serve the purpose of keeping me warm. It's because that cheaper scarf did not cost that. It didn't cost what you paid. There were other very detrimental costs in that product that had to do with the environment and human rights and all kinds of things. There are all those hidden costs that aren't passed on the consumer in fast fashion. So again, it's a huge learning curve for consumers to understand what those hidden costs might be and why things appear in the stores. For us to buy at a fraction of what they really cost is so that we'll buy more 
and keep that huge machine going, the huge fast fashion machine. <laughs> it's quite the paradigm shift in consumer understanding. Yeah, it is. And it yeah. really is a lot of education. And we, we spend a lot of time doing that. And I know North Face did too. They spent a lot of time with this particular project. They won a lot of awards, but we spent a ton of time. I was on a several panel discussions with them, went to Boulder, Colorado, and we did a regenerative agriculture. Actually, it wasn't just agriculture. It was broad-based brands talking about sustainable products and how to do this. And we really were the poster child project. Yeah. Not that other brands weren't doing what we were doing, but we were the only one taking it from the producer, Claire, to the product and following that whole supply chain. And so it was pretty cool. It's really an amazing process and product. It's it's really cool how the product itself is also just like a superior product that came out of it. I'm wondering if there's anything that as consumers or anyone listening out there can be doing to encourage more brands to do more projects like this? From your perspective of interacting with the brand and then the other brands at these various conferences and stuff, I mean, I know the consumers play a huge part, but how can we let the brands know that we want this more? Yeah, I don't know. I think we just have to keep telling this story. I mean, people like you that are doing this, podcasts are very powerful. People who listen, you know, they retain what they hear from these podcasts. And that education is is huge. So I appreciate what you guys are doing to push it forward. There's a lot. I try a little bit in my advertising just to try yeah. to push that forward a little bit as I go along. Yeah. But. Was it just like someone, like a human in the North Face community that or like with the brand that knew about this? Like what was that initial connection that sparked? How did that happen? I'm going to give Rebecca Burgess credit for that again because she started with the Backyard Project, which it was a jacket, sweatshirt hoodie that they made with Sally Fox's cotton. Right. And Sally Fox is another grower like me and she was before me as far as this goes and is still producing her beautiful colored cotton in the sustainable ways, practicing the climate beneficial projects too. But that was the connection. They did the backyard hoodie. It was a zero waste design. And you have to remember that North Face was then located in Alameda. So these are personal connections made in the Bay Area. Crystal Moody would be the second person I'd point to who was huge here. She worked for North Face and quit North Face, went to work for Fibershed. And it was a temporary position with Fibershed while she figured out where she wanted to go with her career. And she was my textile designer. She's the one who designed the fabric and did a lot of that first supply chain work. So she had her feet with both North Face and Fibershed and talked to the people. And then Carol Shue was the sustainability coordinator for the North Face and still is, I believe. And she was the one pushing that forward throughout that whole project. And she's still the one I call, you know, if I'm like, okay, Carol, what do we have now? (laughs) So it's really all about relationships. I think it's like one person that knows somebody mm-hmm. that knows somebody else. And yeah, it's, it's, it's not like a boardroom thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lady farmer thing. The lady farmer thing. That's right. <laughs> that is so cool. Well, two things. Was there any other way in which 2020 and the whole pandemic thing like really affected you and what you're doing out there? And then the other question I wanted to get in was I wanted you to talk a little bit about the natural dye process. I know you have kind of a personal passion for that. And where where does that stand? You said you lost your personal dyer. So I wanted to explore that a little bit. So yeah, no, it affected us in the store because obviously the foot traffic's just not here. Nobody's coming into our area to shop. Website traffic increased, but it was 
tough for everybody to get on board there. You know, I already had a website. So in that regard, I was ahead of the curve, but it's a whole different model to try to sell your things online and promote online versus going to shows and events. And then probably the biggest thing outside of that big sale to North Face, a lot of my buyers are indie dyers. So they buy my base yarns and dye them. And then of course they take them to shows and sell them at shows. Well, so their market's completely dried up. And so those buyers have either doing other things or working with the base yarns they have because they can't sell the product. So until that picks up again, that part of my business has declined a lot. It's half of what it was last year. And that's with one dyer increasing a ton. So I had one new dyer who came on and kind of figured it out somehow. And she's bought a lot and replaced some of what I've lost with other dyers. But I'd say there's six who quit buying. So it's sad. And those are all small, mostly women-owned businesses. And then marketing, of course, has changed where we're trying to do these virtual sales. And one amazing thing is you talk about your product and all of a sudden people are online buying it. (laughs) How does that happen? I talk about it and they buy it. (laughs) We can relate. (laughs) So what kinds of dyes are they using? The plant dyes or? Yeah, each dyer is different. The majority are not using natural dyes or if they are, it's a smaller piece of what they do. I know Mm -hmm. one buyer who's all natural dye, sincere sheep, Brooke sent us. So she's a great customer and buys my base yarns and natural dyes exclusively. She's a master. I love working with Brooke. The dyer that I was using for my yarns was Swans Island and they're in Northport, Maine. They have their own yarn line, which includes natural dyes. And so they picked me up as a contract dyer. They just expanded their own footprint, what they're doing. And so they didn't want to do any custom dyeing, or at least of the size of mine. I don't know if they completely quit or just me. They're not my dyer anymore. And I miss them because they could do the fine dye, the fine yarns that go into fabric. So I'm working on another dyer and I hope that works out, but they don't want to do the fine yarns. So they're going to do my knitter's yarns which is great. And I hope it works. And then we personally dye here in the shop and my mentor and partner, Bonnie Chase, she is a master dyer. She's been doing it since the seventies and she's really amazing. She's taught me so much. And so we dye here, but our dye lots are like a large dye lot's going to be two pounds. So eight skeins. So it's really hard to sell sweater quantity and, you know, to, to be a real yarn line and have mm-hmm. repeatable colors with that type of uh, dyeing plan. I mean, it just, it just doesn't really work very well. So they are online, they're available, but they're more of a retail product. And are those natural dyes that you're using in the shop? And also what's the name of your shop? People might want to know. It's Warner Mountain Weavers in Cedarville, California. Mm-hmm. And okay. Bonnie has a website and so do I. So she's warnermountainweavers.com and then mine, lonnieslana.com. And if you ever get to Northeast California, Surprise Valley and Cedarville is a great place to visit. We have always done a wool gathering in the fall and have classes and just a gathering of like-kinded people. And then throughout the year, we have classes. We try to invite people in, like do a tapestry weaving class or a eco-dyeing plant dyed fabric class, which was a lot of fun. So Lonnie, in beginning to wrap it up, we have a question we like to ask all our guests. What does good dirt mean to you? And that can either be literally or metaphorically or any way you want to answer that the good dirt to me i i think of 
is it dirt or is it soil? That just goes back to my agricultural training. And it's soil to me, it, it's full of life. It's full of plants and little animals and it sustains us into the next growing season every year. And it's very important that we take care of our dirt, our soil. Yeah. And in closing, is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with? Anything you'd like most for people to understand about what it is that you do? Just some understanding about your purchasing dollar. It does matter. And to be thoughtful and mindful about what we put into our homes and just like we are mindful of what we put into our bodies it's important and it's important to small businesses right here in the u.s so i appreciate everybody who's listening to podcasts like yours because you already get it and i appreciate Mm -hmm. spreading the word and and telling others about it Thank you so much, Lonnie. I think this is such a great conversation that helps all of us understand the complexities of a truly sustainable supply chain and the knowledge, the hard work, and the passion that it takes to actually make it work. For me personally, it makes me appreciate even more the integrity of a product that's been managed from its natural source all the way to something that is produced, sold, and worn with respect for the earth, animals, people and something that can be around for generations to come it's really a shift from what we are accustomed to in our consumer society today well said it's so mind-boggling how big these systems are and how much goes into bringing us our products and there is something so satisfying and fulfilling about supporting these types of processes. Again, thank you, Lonnie. And for more Fibershed, again, we'll link to Rebecca's episode. We have a few more coming up on the docket where we're talking to some more Fibershed people. Another great one to reference is our episode with Elizabeth Klein that came out around Fashion Week, Fashion Revolution Week. Um, We also discussed supply chains there. Yeah, and then going back to episode one, we have kind of a primer on how food and fiber and fashion are all connected. So thank you for tuning in this week. And if you're new around here, welcome, join us, follow us on Instagram at we are lady farmer. Uh, we have an online community called the almanac currently not open for enrollment, but we will be this summer. And we hope to see you at our kefir workshop at our natural dye workshop. Stay tuned for our indigo pop-up sale in the marketplace. So many fun things going on and we're here every Friday. We'll see you next week. Bye, everyone.